If you please get out your copies of God's Word as we continue our march through the Gospel of Luke. Today we begin Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 this morning. And let us hear what Jesus has to say to us today. Luke chapter 17, verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's now go and ask God's blessing on our text today. Oh, Lord, we have one of the hardest texts before us today to obey. So I pray that you would give us hearts to hear and hearts that are willing to listen to what you have to say. May we find the freedom that you offer to us in this text And may this change us in our lives. I pray that you would help me to speak it accurately and well. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you think is the hardest thing to do in the Christian life? Take a moment and think about that question. What do you think is the hardest part of the Christian life? Some might say it's consistency in prayer. Because after all, it can sometimes feel like prayer is, doesn't feel like a lot of activity. It just feels like we're sitting in a room talking to someone who isn't there. And it can be hard to be disciplined and dependent when we think about prayer. But maybe it's something else. Maybe it's evangelism. Taking the gospel to strangers and telling them about the truth that Jesus can bring them forgiveness of their sin. For some of us, that makes our palms sweaty just to think about evangelizing or speaking in that way. For others, it might be service, giving up of our time and money for the advancement of the kingdom. I think we could multiply examples here, but I think the hardest thing to do in the Christian life is forgive. And that's what we see in this text here. 
I think the difference is because you only forgive somebody when they've hurt you. You only obey this passage when someone has done you wrong. That's not the case with prayer or evangelism or service. Someone doesn't have to hurt your heart in order for those things to take place. But forgiveness, it does require that. And I think that's the hardest thing to do. It isn't something that you can fake externally. True forgiveness goes all the way down to the heart level. And it's something that we need help with. And if this is a hard thing for you to do, and in fact, for many people it is. I heard recently one Christian speaker who did a series on theology, and one of the hardest things, the one that they received the most walkouts for, was when they got to the issue of forgiveness. More people would leave the building when that topic came up. So I recognize this is difficult. But I also hope that we can see that there's a tremendous freedom in forgiveness. And we're going to see how that's done. So this week... I have finally achieved seminary perfection and that I have three points for you today in your outline. The first is that Jesus calls us to meet deep wrongs with constant forgiveness. Jesus calls us to meet deep wrongs with constant forgiveness. And then secondly, constant forgiveness requires faith in Christ. And thirdly, forgiveness leaves no room for pride. And while I have achieved seminary perfection in three points, I'm only going to be able to get to one of them today. As I looked to our manuscript, I got to the end of my usual page count, and I was still on point one. So to spare you from an hour and a half sermon, we are going to split this into a couple different parts. So we're going to look, we're going to make our focus verses one through four. One, I think, of the misunderstandings of forgiveness is that this is that when we forgive that this is done to light problems. Light slights that come to our lives and that this, that's the only thing that forgiveness comes into. Or sometimes those that are asking for, for forgiveness think that what they've done is not that big of a deal. It's like, why can't you just forgive me? This is what Jesus calls you to do, right? Well, Jesus sets this up so that we can see that when we sin against someone else, this is not a light thing. As we can see here in verse 1. Look what he says here. He says, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better, in fact, for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. This is a very different viewpoint than we think about sin. We tend to look at sin or leading other people into sin as mistakes or errors in judgment. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. In fact, even it says that there are just temptations to sin, setting up of a trap. The word that's used here for temptation calls to mind the section of a trap, if we were to put it in modern terms, where you would put the cheese for the mouse. This would be a temptation that's put out that has deadly consequences when it's tripped. For those that would lead others into sin, they are like a bear trap. And that when sin is done, this is a very serious thing. Such that it would be better if you're going to be the person to lure someone into sin. It would be better if you were drowned and drowned violently. The millstone that's mentioned here would be something I've tried to look up what it was and how heavy this thing would be. 
And some estimates said it would be a few hundred to a couple thousand pound stone that would have been used to rotate and grind grain. Jesus is saying it would be better if you were, had one of those slung around your neck as a necklace and thrown into the sea and brought to the bottom than it would be to cause one of these little ones to sin. This should sober us on a couple of different levels. For one, I, as a pastor and teacher, this gets me where I live. And that I'm, my calling, one of them, is to show what's here in the scriptures. That if I was to lead you astray, it would be better that I would have just died instead of do that. So this lends a sobriety to me as a pastor. Lends a sobriety to us as teachers and as parents that we would keep away our little ones from sin. Gives us this deep picture. There are some commentators that think that this sin is specific in that it refers to apostasy. Leading people away from Jesus and leading them to abandon the faith. I think it's broader than that. I think that this would be in any sin that this is a horrible thing. Whether that's being leading people away from Jesus entirely or leading people away from Jesus temporarily through their sin, that this is a horrible, horrible thing. I think this gives us the better picture of when we start talking about forgiveness. We've set up how horrible it is to sin. It'd be better if you were dead than to lead someone else into this. But now what's to happen when you do sin? I love how realistic Jesus is. The Bible has such a great finger on the pulse of humanity and what we're actually going to deal with. That if your brother sins, because it's going to come up, what do you do? Most of us would like to, at that point, wrap the millstone around his neck, toss him into the sea. But that's not what Jesus tells us to do. Look what he says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. There's a few stages here that I think about that we need to examine closely. And the first that I think we we should do is define terms. What does it mean if we're going to be talking about forgiveness? What does this imply? The word that he uses here for forgiveness has, has, is translated in several different contexts. So it can be referred to grabbing hold of somebody, but, but then suddenly releasing them to forgive them, let them go. It's also used in the context of a debt that's been canceled. You owed someone a lot of money, but it's been written off of your account, and you no longer owe that person. This is what it means to forgive But what does this mean practically when we forgive someone, when we let things go? This isn't usually what we see from our children when we force them to jump through the hoop of apologizing to one another and forgiving one another. It's not forgiveness with a face through a scowl, I forgive you. It's not what he's talking about here. Practically, I believe it was, I can't remember exactly where I heard this. I believe it was Nancy Lee DeMoss but she had expounded what forgiveness meant practically. It meant that you were not going to bring up this offense to the person that offended you. You weren't going to bring it up to other people. And you weren't even going to bring it up to yourself. That's what it means to forgive. It's no, there's no chance to ruminate over what's been done to you. To others, to the person 
or to yourself. To let things go. Now, let me be quick to add here that this is a repeated process. This is something that needs to be done for us, depending on how deep the hurt is, sometimes again and again and again when those hurts come back. It's a serious process to forgive. Now, let me be quick to say that this doesn't mean that the person that has hurt you, that we go back to the relationship the way that it was. People have twisted forgiveness to also, and people who have perpetuated abuse onto people, have taken the thought, it's like, well, unless you come back and make things the way that it was, then you haven't really forgiven me. That's not what it means. It means that you're not going to bring it up to that person, but there have been those that we've realized we can't trust anymore. To use a small example, if you tell someone to something in confidence, it's embarrassing to yourself, and they go and gossip it around to everybody else, you are supposed to forgive them. You can't hold bitterness against them anymore, but that doesn't mean you have to go back and share more intimate details with your life. And in the same way, if there are those that have been in abusive situations, this does not mean you have to put yourself back in an abusive situation in order to say you've forgiven them. That's not what he's talking about here. It's also not talking about that we forgive and forget and pretend like it never happened. Because you can't do that. That's not how the human brain works. But that's what makes forgiveness such an amazing thing. It's not forgetting it so this way you can move on. It's you remember anyway and choose to forgive. That's what makes this such a big process. And this is what Jesus is going to be spelling out. And he's going to get real practical. So let's start again. Jesus lives in, lives in the world where there are going to be sins. There's going to be bumps. There's going to be hurts. You've been hurt. What's next? Verse three, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now let's stop here for a moment. To rebuke someone who has sinned against you. What does this mean? This is a step that oftentimes the less confrontational among us would like to skip. Because let's be honest, who wants to make waves? It's already been done. One commentator, whom I, uh, commentator and pastor's name is Dale Ralph Davis, imagines a reaction to this verse. And it says, oh, I could never rebuke someone. That would be way too confrontational. And he responds, are you saying that you can't tell the truth? This is what rebuke is. In other words, when a sin has been committed against you and you pretend like nothing has happened in order to avoid confrontation, we say that nothing has happened and we're lying. And we're not helping the other person. We must call sin what it is and be honest with people. Now, obviously, we don't use this verse to go, it's like, okay, some of you jerks are finally getting what's coming to you. This is not what we're looking at when it comes to rebuke. Like most things, it's a little bit more godly than that. In fact, Philip Ryken chimes in here and he says, we need to go to one another prayerfully, not impulsively, asking God to glorify himself through our ministry of reconciliation. 
He continues, do we care enough to confront and are we godly enough to do it with Christ-like compassion? Christian rebuking is not revenge, but it's the first step of reconciliation. It's being honest with what's happened to not take your pound of flesh, but to win your brother back. That's the point. And to be clear, this rebuke happens with the person, not with the small group or with your social media following. This is something that's done between the two. In fact, Leviticus, of all books, Leviticus 19.17 spells this out really well. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Do you hear that? If we just can't let our anger boil in our hearts, but we're to go to the person who offended us and reason clearly with them. Because if we don't, we can let that bitterness just build up in our hearts and now you're the one that's sinning. We don't want to do that. We can probably remember as we're going through these things, maybe some names are popping up in your mind about going to this person and having those difficult conversations. It's amazing when we look into most movies that start, so many films could have been avoided by just a simple conversation between the two characters. How many Hallmark movies have added on 45 minutes of plot because they just wouldn't talk about what's bothering them? And I know this because they have this conversation at the end, always. So then they get married and reconcile, so... Not that I watch a lot of Hallmark movies to know this, but it illustrates what we're supposed to do. It illustrates that we're supposed to go and confront with Christ-like compassion, with a view towards reconciliation instead of revenge. It's a really difficult thing to do. So how do we do that? How do we find that balance? Because for the most part, when we have been offended and it's time to rebuke, we're just, we're ready. So how do we get the heart that wants to win them back instead of drown them in the sea? Um, Another commentator put this very well. It says, reproof should be accompanied by the awareness of common guilt before God and therefore by a spirit of unconditional forgiveness. In other words, in order to confront someone with their sin, we have to remember that we stand in a position of sin too. We have offended God. We are in a place of debt ourselves. And we've been forgiven. So if we are going to be forgiven, then we have to forgive You remember the story that Jesus told in another context of two servants who were in a position of debt. One servant owed his master a billion dollars if we were to transfer the money amounts to today. And he was forgiven of his debt. And then he goes around and he starts choking somebody who owes him a thousand dollars. Still a lot of money, but it's going to be paid off. And he takes that servant and throws him in prison. and He refuses to forgive him. He didn't understand what he had just been forgiven and took it out on that guy. 
But if he had remembered, I've just been forgiven a lifetime of debt. I can forgive this other debt. Large though it is to me, I can be forgiven. And that's the attitude we have to remember when we come to confront somebody is that we've been forgiven too and to extend this to them. So, what have we seen so far? We've seen that there is a seriousness to sin. Jesus is not minimizing what's going on, is not minimizing the awfulness of sin to one another. But he's pulled out that the way that we deal with this is to confront those that have sinned, to call them on it in Christ-like love and to forgive this person and, cho- and choosing not to bring it up to them again. That that account has been wiped clean and refusing to be bitter to them. But what happens when it's not just one time? Sometimes we can write off the idea of forgiveness being okay when the person that's done it has only done it once. Well, we all make mistakes. I can write it off this time. But Jesus just keeps cranking it up on us. And we get here to verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus, some have taken this passage to mean that once the person gets to the eighth hurt, you no longer have to forgive them. But it's not a math thing. As in another context, Jesus says you have to forgive them 70 times seven. So it's not about a numbers thing. The word seven is meant to be a full number in Judaism. So when someone is fully hurting you again and again and again, even in a single day, He is calling you to forgive this person. Now, what about here when he seems to give an order and he says, if your brother sins and if he repents, forgive him. What about in later on in verse four, if he sins to you seven times a day and then turns to you seven times a day saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Does this mean that we get to withhold forgiveness until the other person sees what they've done and are choosing to repent? Well, Jesus doesn't really answer that question here in this context. Jesus doesn't give us a protocol for if your brother sins but doesn't repent, here's what you do. But what we do see is in Luke 23, 34, when he is actively being nailed to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Those Roman soldiers and those Jewish leaders aren't repenting of their sin. Yet that forgiveness is being extended And I think that's the heart that Jesus is meant for us to have when we approach these issues. That this is meant to be a continuous attitude of forgiveness and that God gives us no avenue to be bitter. There's no opportunity to hold a grudge. But it's to be forgiving. So why does Jesus say if? What does he mean by that? I think J.C. Ryle, who's a um, wonderful preacher and a couple centuries ago, he answers this beautifully. He says, this expression of if cannot mean that we are not to forgive men unless they do repent. At this rate, there would be much bitterness constantly kept alive. But it does mean that when there is no repentance or regret for an injury done, there can be no renewal of cordial friendship or complete reconciliation between man and man. Do you hear what he's saying? 
No, we don't get to hold a grudge, but if the other person is not willing to admit what they've done is wrong, it's really hard to reconcile that relationship. This gives us the onus on if we have ever been the offensive ones, we can't just say, it's like, well, you gotta forgive me. And that's, that's just what we move on to. It's like, no, there has to be, if we've been confronted with our sin, there needs to be a repentance heart on our own part in order to bring about that reconciliation. But we don't get to withhold forgiveness from them. An ancient preacher had said that we need to be forgiving like a doctor needs to be a cure to his patients. The patient comes in with an ailment. He cures them and sends them away. The patient comes back with the same ailment. He doesn't get to say, well, I've cured you already. Be gone. But as many times as the patient arrives with as many different things as he has, the doctor gives her cure. That's what we're supposed to be. For as many times as people come and sinned, we are called to forgive. This is a really high calling that Jesus gives to us here. We're supposed to call out sin for what it is, which makes those of us who are more confrontational or, or who are less confrontational, this is difficult for us to do. And for forgiveness, we're supposed to not bring up the hurt again, even if we have to do so constantly. But it doesn't mean that we have to go back to trusting the person the way that it was. This is really, really difficult to do. But this is something that we must do. We have to confront sin, especially when it's a case of abuse. So many times people in the church have twisted this to try to hide their abuse that they've done to others in there, saying you have to forgive me and you have to not mention it to anybody else. And that's a lie. If you've been abused, you need to confront them. And don't do that alone. Bring in the proper authorities to do that. To confront that sin, it's not loving to hide it. But it's to bring it into the open so that it's dealt with fully. But those sinful hurts that we have brought upon ourselves, I mean really hard stuff. Our call is to forgive, but recognize that this is a process and may take a while. And that it's okay to take some time and work through that and seek from God the power to forgive the person that's hurt you badly. Now it's fine to think about these things in the theoretical, but what happens when it gets practical? Last month was the six-year anniversary of the shooting at Emmanuel Africa, a Methodist Episcopal church in Charleston, South Carolina. Nine people were murdered by the shooter, including one woman who was the mother of a man named Chris Singleton. He and many others had decided to forgive the one who had murdered their family members, and that made national headlines. He's quoted as saying the following, this is according to the USA Today. He says, after seeing what happened and the reason why it happened, and after seeing how people could forgive, I truly hope that people will see that it wasn't just us saying words. He continues that the narrative of forgiveness that we see today is submitting, and people think that it means you're weak, or people would think that. But I've realized that forgiving is so much tougher than holding a grudge. It takes a lot more courage to forgive than it does to say, I'm going to be upset about whatever forever. 
This is someone who lost his mother to murder. This is the power of the gospel in life. This man is not denying what's happened. That what this man did in Charleston was a horrific evil and has been confronted by it. He does not pretending that nothing happened. But he is exercising true forgiveness and that he knows what happened and chooses not to forgive and chooses to forgive to not hold a grudge anyway. To quote Dale Ralph Davis again, he says, we are often too spineless to rebuke and too resentful to forgive. The Christian life, as usual, demands both guts and goodness. So where does this come from? How do we get this power to forgive? One of those things is to remember that we have been forgiven as well. And maybe this could be an opportunity for those that struggle with assurance of salvation to understand what we've just outlined here in forgiveness is what Jesus does for you. That when you come to Jesus and you ask for forgiveness of your sins, Jesus not up there saying, it's like, all right, this one time. Well, okay, but I'm going to bring this up anytime you come back. That's not our Savior. When Jesus forgives, it is permanent. When Jesus forgives, he wipes it from the record. Jesus lives this passage and that he forgives you. Really? And this is not, it's very easy for us to look at Jesus because we haven't seen him before. We can't see a physical image of him. And we tend to think he's this spiritual concept up in the clouds. But he's a real person whom we've really offended. But who's also really forgiving and can forgive you and not bring it up again. No matter what you've done, this is what he does for you. That he separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. Remember, I was talking to Sue once. She had pointed out to me that he doesn't say that he brings it and separates it as far as the north is from the south. Because eventually you come back around to those things. But the east and west, as long as you're traveling east, you're always traveling east. If you're traveling west, you're always traveling west. There's no coming back around to that. When Jesus separates your sin, it's gone. Why is he able to do that? Not just because Jesus is putting your sin away or pretending like it didn't happen, but he's paid for it too. Sin is serious, and it called for Jesus' blood to fix it. And he shed it willingly for you. So that you can be fully and finally forgiven. Now when you grasp that in its beauty. And I wish words just can't. I'm frustrated in that I cannot show you the depth of that beauty here. I wish I could. When we get a hold of that in what a real person Jesus has done for us. Forgiven us billions in debt. We can forgive others in debt to us, even if they owe us millions. But that's there. But there's another thing that Jesus offers to us. 
and that it's faith in him. Coming to him and realizing that forgiveness, being forgiven by Christ, has a transforming power in the heart that results in faith in him that is able to do incredible things. Incredible things that we will need to explore next time. So please come back and hear more. If you are struggling with forgiving someone, we're going to look next time at how we can do that. But the first thing, though, is that you have to come to Christ. If you've not put your faith in Jesus, if you have not had your sins forgiven, you are not going to be able to forgive other people. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, and it says that we forgive our debts as we have been forgiven. If we're not able to forgive other people, it's because our hearts haven't been changed to forgive. As Nancy Guthrie once said, if you can't forgive, you haven't been forgiven. Because the power of the gospel that you that has been put into your heart is a transforming work so that you can forgive anything. So that's our takeaway today. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is being willing to, even though you remember the hurt that's happened, is choosing not to bring it up again. The way that we react when we have been hurt is to lovingly confront the person who has hurt us with a spirit that has already forgiven them and is already willing to put that behind. And that's only accomplished because we've come to Christ and been forgiven ourselves. To recognize that we stand before God as forgiven people who don't deserve forgiveness, but have been given it anyway. And the person that's hurt you, you may feel like they don't deserve your forgiveness either. They probably don't. But you didn't deserve your forgiveness either. So forgive lavishly. Because you have been forgiven and are loved lavishly. This is what Christ offers to you today. So I pray that you would come to him. And if you haven't come to him, then please come and see me afterward. I'll be in the back or see one of our elders. And we would be glad to walk you through this and to help you see and meet Jesus and be forgiven yourself. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for a gift that we could not possibly earn. Forgiveness is something that has to be given, not earned. And we thank you for how you have forgiven us of our sin. And may that give us power to forgive those who sin against us. Lord, I pray for hearts that have been hurt deeply, either in this room or watching online, that may be thinking, there's just no way that I can forgive I pray that you would be with their hearts, that you would comfort them. For those that have been bitter for years, I pray that you would give them the grace to break that heart, that it would be set free from being chained to offenses of the past, but that it can be forgiven to walk forward in what it is that you have for them in the future. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.